I invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke. Uh, We're going to finish up chapter 17 today. Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look, There, or look, here, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking, and marrying, and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed, On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray, church. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, Even though at times it is hard to understand, Lord, and um, there's uncertainty in our mind, Father, we thank you that you give us the word and the assurance that we have through it, Father, that through it you reveal to us yourself, you reveal to us Christ, and Lord, we can trust your word. So Father, as we look at this text, may your spirit be at work among us. Uh, Open up our eyes to see, our hearts, our ears to hear, so that we, we may see the glory of Christ. We pray this all in his name for your glory. Amen. You may be seated. Um, As we open God's Word together every Lord's Day, we are comforted by its clarity. We are comforted by its certainty. We know this is the Word of God, that we can fully put our faith in it. His Word anchors us. It secures us. It grounds us. It's a foundation for our life. And the church is to believe, it is to proclaim, and it is to obey the word of God with 
certainty and no shame. Um, and this is one of the things that we greatly value as a church. We love God's word. Our goal is not, as a church, our goal is not what is the least we can believe, what is the least we can do and still be called Christians, but responding in worship to the riches of God's grace revealed to us through Christ, we desire to obey him in all that he has commanded to us. And so we don't gather to speculate, but we gather to hear and believe the word of God. And I say this because today's text uh, has a lot of uncertainty and maybe even a little bit of speculation on my part. Um, this passage is very much es eschatological, meaning it's a prophetic text about the future events that will come. And when it comes to eschatology and these texts, there's as much interpretations and meanings that people will put before us as there are stars in the sky. <laughs> and I'm sure some of you, as we read these words, have your own strong positions. Many pastors and teachers who are friends and agree with each other on everything else will disagree on how to interpret these texts. So just a warning, my understanding of this text is not certain, and there's a lot of maybes today, okay? Uh, it's a little unusual, and it's, it's an uncomfortable place to be, but that's where, that's where we're at. Um, our text begins with the Pharisees coming to Jesus with a question. And their question is, we find in verse 20, when the kingdom of God would come. Some translations say that they didn't just ask, they demanded. They demanded from Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? The Gospel of Luke highlights uh, this, this, this theme that Jesus continues to preach, and it is the theme of the kingdom of God. Uh, Luke emphasizes this. He's the he, He's the, he's the author that puts the most attention on this topic more than anyone else. Um, and Jesus preached. He proclaimed the coming of the kingdom of God. He uh, described the nature of the kingdom of God through the parables that he taught. And so hearing Jesus preach this, the Pharisees demanded an explanation. Jesus, you keep talking about this kingdom. Where is it? When is it going to come? You see, the Pharisees, they were expecting a Messiah. They were waiting for him to come. They were waiting for the kingdom of God to come. They were obsessed with this idea of the Messiah and his kingdom coming. They were trying to do everything possible to prepare for this occasion, and that's why they were so hardcore on their religion. They thought they had to achieve, the nation itself has to achieve a certain amount of holiness before Christ would come. But their expectation of his coming was very different from the Messiah and from the kingdom that has actually come. And Jesus did not fit the bill for them. They were waiting for the Messiah to come in glory, in power, 
and dominion to establish an actual physical reign and throne on earth. A Messiah who would equip the Jews with horses and chariots and weapons to take on the Romans. A Messiah who will boldly lead them into battle just like one day David did. A Messiah who will make them again the greatest nation on earth who will drive out Rome, crush all the enemies, expand the borders. And this Messiah would then sit on the throne of David and rule and reign forever and ever. This is what they were waiting for. This is what they were expecting. And so they rejected Jesus because he was nothing like what they imagined the Messiah to be. Jesus failed all of their expectations. And so they use this as evidence against him that he is not the Messiah. They are annoyed that Jesus claims to be the one and that he keeps on preaching the kingdom has arrived. And so they demand from him where? When, Jesus? And Jesus answers them. He says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So Jesus responds to them saying, God's kingdom, the arrival of the Messiah, will not be as you expect. It is not a mere physical or political or a military operation or a state. You can't point to the kingdom of God and say, here it is, like you can point to a country, let's say Rome or Judea or a kingdom or a king. Jesus says you can't point to God's kingdom in such a way. That is not the nature of God's kingdom. What is it then? Jesus says the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So we can't point it out. We can't say, look, it's here. But it's in the midst of us. How does this work? What do you mean, Jesus? How is the kingdom in the midst of us? The kingdom of God is in the midst of them. That kingdom is Christ and all the work that he is doing. In the, in the beginning of his ministry, if you remember, Jesus made clear what he came for and what he was going to do and what the mission uh, what is the mission of his ministry and his coming? We read it in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Uh, he quotes Isaiah, and Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is what Christ came to do. This, is, this right here is the nature of his kingdom. And so the question is, who are the oppressed? Who are the captives? It is humanity. It is us. Who are they captivated and oppressed by? Is it Rome? 
No, ultimately it's Satan. It's the kingdom of darkness. And so the kingdom that Jesus brings, the kingdom that Jesus brought, even though it does not meet the expectations of the Pharisees and even the expectations of the disciples, it is far greater and better than anyone could ever imagine. Christ and God's kingdom does not just save us from the power of earthly tyrants, the power of Rome. He came came to save us from the kingdom, from the power and the tyranny of a much greater enemy, a much more ancient enemy, much more deadly enemy. Christ came to save us from the kingdom of darkness and the tyranny of Satan. It's the first thing that the Pharisees are missing. The Pharisees wanted to be saved from slavery to Rome. They were tired of the imposed taxation by a foreign king and the debts that they owed to Rome. They wanted freedom, yet Jesus' kingdom saves them from slavery to sin. Christ comes to cancel the debt of sin that stood against us with all of its legal demands. They wanted to be free from Rome to enjoy a long and prosperous life. For their kids to enjoy a long and prosperous life free from a foreign king. Yet Jesus brings the kingdom of God to free humanity from the grip of death, from its power over us. So we can live in prosperity in the kingdom, and in the life to come eternally in his glory. And so the question is, what good is a physical kingdom and victory over Rome if you are still dead in your sins and separated from God? What good is a Messiah on the throne of David if death still has its power over you and you are eternally damned? What good is that? They did not recognize that they had a much greater enemy than Rome. They had a much bigger problem on their hands than Rome. And so they do not see their desperate need for a Messiah who will save them from their sin, who will save them from the grip of death and eternal darkness. Yet he's standing in front of them. God's kingdom is in the midst of them. Just think about this. The Pharisees are asking him, mocking him, asking, where is this kingdom that you say and proclaim? And the king of kings is right in front of them in their midst. The Lord of lords, the creator, the sustainer is standing in the midst of them. The one who will secure their salvation and eternal freedom. It's not the Jesus that they expected, but it is the Jesus in the kingdom of God that they so desperately needed. And everything Christ is doing in his ministry is pointing to the fact that he is the king and the Messiah that they need, not the king and the Messiah that they expected. Instead of overthrowing Rome, Jesus is casting out demons. He's showing his power over the spiritual realm, over Satan and his demons. He is healing the sick. He is giving sight to the blind, giving sinners hope and forgiveness. Jesus 
is fighting a much greater enemy than they can ever imagine. Some say that when Jesus says, Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Some translations even say, in you. Um, They say that Jesus is saying simply that he's in the hearts of people. His kingdom is in our hearts. You can't see it because it's in the heart. It's true that our hearts must be ruled by Christ, that his kingdom must be established in our hearts, but the kingdom of God is so much greater than that. Christ is seated on his throne right now, ruling and reigning not just in our hearts, but over all of creation, over everything, spiritual and physical. All of Christ's enemies are being put under his feet right now, The kingdom is alive, and the kingdom is well. And we can't point to a place on a map and show, oh, here is the kingdom of God. But by faith we know that his kingdom is real. And even as those who are now citizens of the kingdom of God, those who are ruled by Christ, what are we to do? How do we to now live? Are we to still walk in our sin? No. The effects of God's power, his rule and reign over us, will will go further. It will affect the people around us as we proclaim the gospel, as we declare his word, as we live lives of worship as people of Christ. It will inevitably change our families. It will change cultures. It will change nations. And we can't point to the kingdom of God on the map, but we can point to the realities and the changes that the kingdom of God is causing in our midst. We can't point to the kingdom of God, but by faith, we see it in our midst. The Pharisees did not have the eyes to see and to understand this. And so Jesus turns to his disciples, and he begins telling them, of what is to come. The disciples themselves, they had a wrong expectation of Christ. Um, They too were often seeking a physical establishment of Christ's rule on earth. They were hoping they're going to have a piece of that rule. They would even ask Jesus Jesus if they could sit on, on the left and on the right of Christ when he does establish his kingdom. And so Jesus sets them straight. He realigns their expectations. And the future that he tells them about that is to come in the near future does not sound very optimistic. It's definitely not the future that they were hoping for. We read in verse 22, and he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. And so the first thing that he tells them, first thing Jesus tells them is that he will soon be gone. It's anticlimactic, especially if you think that Christ will soon establish his reign 
Jesus, Jesus tells them, I will soon be gone. You will no longer see me. He tells them, you will desire to see me. You will desire for these days that you've had with me. But I'll be gone. In verse 25, Jesus presses this issue even further. He tells them that he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So not only will Jesus not be found, not only will he go and leave, but he is going to also suffer many things and he is going to be rejected. These words would be a complete buzzkill to the disciples. And Jesus warns them, as you long for those days with me, do not be fooled. Do not believe those who say, look, the Messiah is here. Look, he is there. Don't follow them. And we know historically that there were many antichrists. There were many messiahs that would come and who would claim to be Jesus, who would claim to be the one. Christ says, do not believe them. And Jesus continues and he says, For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his days. Probably most of us uh, have been in the middle of a massive uh, lightning storm. I remember as a kid we were traveling across, across the country and somewhere closer to the east coast um, on the horizon there was this massive uh, thunderstorm. It was just miles and hundreds of miles wide, and those bolts would, would just flash from one side to the other. It was just, it was amazing. I was, I was small, and, and just this, it just impressed on me. And Jesus says, so will it be in his day. So will be his coming. It will be loud. It will be sudden. And it will be visible for all to see like a lightning that bolts across the entire sky. And this is where we come to some uncertainty. Here's where the interp interpretations of this text and what this coming of Christ uh, begins to split. Jesus could either be speaking about his second coming or Jesus could be warning about his coming catastrophic judgment on Jerusalem and its destruction in 70 AD. In parallel passages like Matthew 24, Jesus has both 70 AD and his final coming in mind. The same thing may be happening here. When we look at what happened in Jerusalem in 70 AD, this period was one of the worst uh, darkest moments in Jewish history. It was, it's often called the first Holocaust. Around 66 BC, unrest broke out among uh, discontented Jews. They began to rebel against Rome. So Emperor Nero, Nero sent a military general, Vespasian, to take care of things. And so this general, he would brutally destroy entire villages in Israel. He would come in and kill every single one in those villages. And one of those destroyed villages was a survivor named Josephus, who became the famous historian uh, who lived to tell the story. And when Vespasian became a governor of Rome, 
he gave the job of destroying Jerusalem over to his son, Titus. So Titus quickly set siege to Jerusalem. And in the final attack, Titus and his army killed 1.1 million Jews in just a very short period of time. They destroyed the second temple. And they drove out the Jewish people out of all Judea into all the corners of the earth. That was basically the end of the Jewish nation. They did not exist until very recently. For almost 2,000 years, the Jewish nation did not exist. And so as the Pharisees are asking Jesus with a tone of mockery, when will the kingdom of God come? As they say, you are not the real Messiah, as they continue to reject him and not believe in him, at the same time they are anticipating the real Messiah that will come and establish a physical kingdom and freedom from Rome what they got instead only 40 years later is that their hopes of a kingdom were dashed to pieces as Rome would bring the Jewish nation to an end. The second temple is desecrated, it is destroyed, and the Pharisees themselves, they cease to exist only 40 years later. Instead of established kingdom, they got no kingdom. And this judgment was so sudden. This judgment was not expected. And this judgment was thorough. So maybe in our text, Jesus is telling the disciples about this judgment that will come. It came fast. It came sudden. It came out of nowhere. Maybe he's telling them about his coming at the end of age. Or maybe Jesus has both events in mind. Jesus continues and he says, verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting, building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus is telling them that this event, whatever it is, will happen when the people least expect it. Life will go on as it does. People will continue to live. People will continue to get married, build homes. Eat, drink, buy, sell, plant. As a side note, if you're looking for a future-proof career, Jesus provides us with a great list here. Till the end, Jesus says people will eat, build homes, get married. So weddings, construction, food and beverage industries, there's your proof, uh, future-proof career choices. And so Jesus says, life will go on. No one will suspect that disaster is coming until suddenly it does. And Jesus gives us two other examples when this has happened previously. Just as it was in the days of Noah when the great flood has come and destroyed them all. 
and just as it was in the days of Lot, when fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed Sodom. Jesus warns us and says, so it will be on the day when Christ is revealed. And in verse 31, Jesus begins to tell them what to do when disaster comes. What should you do? When this great day comes, on that day, let no one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, the other will be left. When I was younger, much younger, um, I accidentally burned down the house that we lived in. Um, I was at home with my sister. My parents were at our friend's house close by. And we went to sleep, we went to bed, and... Um, we turned on the little nightlight, and the light bulb was out. And so I went to grab the light bulb, put it in, and instead of a 15 water, I put 100 water. And it was too bright. So I threw a blanket over it. It made a nice filtered light, cozy. <laughs> and we fell asleep. And the next thing I remember, my sister is waking me up. And the blanket that's on top of the lamp is on fire. In this room are all my treasures. My Legos, my toys, my little cars. All of my possessions and treasures are in this room. So what do I do? I go and grab a cup. thought I grabbed a big cup, filled it with water, and I come back to put the fire out, and at this point, our bed is already burning. I've tempted to do something about that fire, but I got burnt, and I finally ran out. I made the phone call for my parents, and literally within seconds, the line was cut. I should have not tried to go back and save my toys and put out the fire. I should have just ran out from the first side of it and called for help. This is what Jesus is warning us about. Jesus says, when disaster strikes, don't turn around. Don't try to save your stuff. If you're in the field, don't go home. Run. Don't be like like Lot's wife who turns back and looks where all her livelihood was. who is grieving all the loss that she is experiencing as as the city is burning. And God judged her with the others. Jesus says, do not look back. Do not go back. You will lose all that you have. Let it be lost, but at least you will preserve your life. And if you try to preserve your life, you will lose it. The one who will try to save himself will lose and this advice that Jesus gives was very counter, counter to the wisdom of the time. 
Back then, if there was an invasion, the safest place to go was into the fortified city, into the city walls. A messenger from the watchman would come. He would blow the trumpet. He would ride uh, around the city. He would go inside the city and warn everyone that there is uh, someone, the enemy is coming. And so they would close up the gates. They would fortify the city, and that was the safest place to be. Here in Matthew's parallel text, Jesus says the opposite. He says, flee. Flee to the mountains. Flee to the hills. Get out of the city. And history shows us when in 70 AD, Jerusalem was under siege. When Rome invaded, the Jewish people fled inside the walls like they always do. And the Christians who took the words of Christ seriously, they ran away from the city and found refuge in the hills. And those who were in the city were slaughtered. And so much Christians were saved. That's what history tells us. The messenger blows the horn. Some flee inside the city. Some run to the hills. And a division takes place. People you work with, the mill, grinding wheat, spouse that you were just in bed with maybe last night, one would be taken, one would be slaughtered. The other ones would be spared. Same thing with the coming of Christ. We can apply this to 70 AD, we can apply this to the coming of Christ. Some families, some of our friends, some of our coworkers, we will be divided. Some to eternal life, others to eternal hell. When Christ comes, some of our closest friends and family will find themselves outside of Christ. Jesus tells us and he warns us of this. And so the disciples are a little freaked out at this point. So they ask, when? When will this happen, Jesus? Where? And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Not much help there, Jesus. When we see vultures circling in the sky, this is a sign of death. A sign of rotting corpses. You might not see the corpse. You might not even know that something died. But the circling vultures are the sign that something is there. How does this translate and apply to our day and age? What are these vultures? What are the dead corpses? I have no clue. Many people try to point out to all sorts of signs. Signs of the coming of Christ. Some even made predictions, exact years, and guess what? All of them have failed miserably. Jesus says, we do not know the day or the hour. It is uncertain. But I want to end with what is certain, what is indisputable, and what is certain is that Christ will come. And what is certain is that we must take the words of Christ seriously, that we must be ready. The day will come, just like the great flood came and God judged the wickedness and the perversion of the earth. The day will come just like it did on Sodom and God judged the wickedness and the perversion of those cities. The day will come just like it came in 70 AD. And even though 
those days, and even though those days came suddenly, and even without warning, it seems, the warning was there. Noah spent time, years proclaiming that the flood is coming, and he was mocked. And so the warning, the call still goes out today. Christ will return. And listen, the only safe place, the only refuge is to be found in him. So the call is, come to Christ. Hide in him. It's the only safe place. And if you are in Christ, listen, there's nothing to fear. A lot of times as Christians think about the last days, coming of Christ, they're gripped with fear. Church, we have nothing to fear. Our king is on the throne. He is ruling and reigning. And whatever the future holds, all the certainties, all the uncertainties, the God who holds us, he does not have any uncertainties. He knows. He knows. In Christ, we have nothing to fear, not even death, because he has defeated it himself. And so if you are in Christ, you have nothing to fear. And if you are not in Christ, come to Christ. Hide in him. Find refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, even though uh, I might not understand everything that is going on in this text, Father, we thank you that there is enough here for us, Lord. Um, we thank you, Lord, for the warning and for this uh, great uh, prophecy and, and, and declaration of the future that you make, that you will come. Our King and our Lord will come to take us home. You will reign forever, Lord. And so, Father, uh, for those who are not found safely in you, for those who are still living in rebellion and sin, those who are still captive to the tyrant, Satan's sin, Father, would you show them their desperate place? Would you show them that this kingdom, Lord, this kingdom of Satan will not stand long any longer, that you have won, that you stand and you call all sinners to yourself, that you call all to come and repent. So, Father, move in the hearts of those who do not know you. Lord, regenerate them. Father, call them and draw them to, their, to, to yourself. May they find refuge and you. And Lord, as we hear these words, as your church, as your people, Lord, may we uh, not be distraught, may we not be in fear, but may we be encouraged that you, our King, are coming. You are coming. So Father, may we be ready. May we be prepared. May we be anticipating and waiting for your coming, Lord. And may that impact the way we live today, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen.